We are slowly working our way through the book of James when I have the privilege of speaking. Right now we are currently in the middle of a series on Nehemiah that Matt is leading us through on most Sundays and occasionally uh, there are opportunities for breaks. This week he was in Wisconsin for a Simeon Trust seminar just learning how to be a better expositor of God's word. So I am glad to be able to return this Sunday to the letter of James. And you can go ahead and open your Bibles to James chapter 2. This is the letter written by James, the brother of Jesus, and a prominent leader in the Jerusalem church. I've titled the series, True Religion, because throughout his letter, James highlights different tests or proofs of genuine faith. He gives us pictures of what it looks like to have true, real faith in Jesus and what that looks like in action. The last time, last time I spoke, I actually did a message on an eternal perspective on New Year's Eve. So going back a bit before that was the last time we were in James. And just as a, a quick refresher, what we were talking about then was the test of partiality or preferential treatment. And James used the rich and the poor and how we treat them as kind of a test case for our hearts when it comes to being preferential and partial with one another. But in the early church, partiality went far beyond the rich and the poor. For instance, it took all of five chapters of the book of Acts before we hear complaint lodged against the apostles by the Hellenists, the Greeks of the church, charging that the Hebrews, that their widows were being, or that the Hebrews' widows were getting preferential treatment and their widows, the Greek widows, were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. We're also well aware of long-held racial prejudices. Um, Feelings that the Jews had about Samaritans and Gentiles, which, which, as we read through the New Testament, these things didn't just evaporate when they became Christians. To the point that different teachers traveled from church to church seeking to impose different elements of the law on Gentile Christians, including the practice of a circumcision. And even Peter needed to be openly rebuked by Paul for his sinful separation from Gentile believers. And ultimately a church council, which James presided over, was called to reach a consensus on the matter. Being partial and not treating one another first with love, it was a huge issue in the early church. And James was aware that the issue ran much deeper than just a few errant preferences. Now, as we come to this morning's passage, he's going to use that as kind of the springboard. He'll reference partiality, but he uses it to get to, I think, what is considered by him to be an even deeper issue to explore our relationship with God's law. Before we dive into that, I want to ask God for his help that we might hear his voice as we're gathered together. Would you pray with me? Father, you, you are good and gracious and you give good gifts to your children, including your word, your law, your spirit, Would you give us ears to hear what you desire to say to us this morning? Lord, I'm sure we come in distracted. We come in with many other things on our minds right now. And most of us have not come in thinking, oh, 
I really want to hear about your law this morning. So help us. Help us to focus. Help us to hear what you have for us this morning. I pray for help. You know my fatigue. You know that I need you to be able to express what is on your heart. I cannot do it apart from you, from your spirit. So we each come dependent on you this morning, asking that you would reveal yourself in our time together. In your name we pray, amen. Well, please read with me James chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak. And so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. As we read this, as I've been looking at this, I'm very aware that this passage, the flow is very back and forth. We begin with this. If you really do this, great job. Hey, well done. But then it seems almost just as quickly, it comes in with a, but let's be real. Not really great at this. Kind of stink at this. And just in case that doesn't register for you, it's kind of a big deal that we don't do this because it ultimately reveals that we're transgressing the whole law. And it switches back to, so do what is right because you are free. And then back again because there's no mercy if you don't show mercy before ending with, hey, mercy beats judgment. It's very back and forth. But I think through all that James is trying to convey, this is the message that he wants us to see this morning. We must be broken by the law so we can be freed to really fulfill the law. The law has a job to do in us in order for us to be enabled to respond rightly to it. See, the, the nature of the law is, is not just random codes of conduct or unthoughtful whims from a fed-up God. I think we have different pictures in our mind of why would, why would God give us these things? Why would he be so oppressive telling us what to do? What we need to realize is this is the author of life coming to us and saying, this is how I have created life to work. You were made in my image. The more accurately you reflect that image, the better life works. Blessings come through what I have revealed to you. That's at least at part what James is saying when, when he makes his first comment. If you really do this, 
if you really are obeying this command, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. It, one, that's not easy, so hey, good job, but also, that's the place of blessing. That's the place of safety. That is good for you. You are in the best place that you can be. Now, we all know that doesn't mean that even when we seek to obey that life is easy because we still live in a fallen world, but it recognizes that God made us to exist in a world that runs according to his rules. And when we honor what he has established, there are blessings that accompany that. And there's risk, there's harm that comes when we fight against that. The very first law that we sought to impart to our children were the verses found in Ephesians 6, 1 through 3. Should be favorite verses of all parents. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We really sought not to have a long list of do's and don'ts that we were trying to impress on our kids all the time and in different situations. We really wanted them to get this. Your job is to honor and obey. Obey, obedience has to do with your actions. Honoring has to do with your heart. And if you do these things, action that's right and heart that's right, well, we tried to point out from these verses, oftentimes in our correction sessions, so many, many many times, particularly in the early years, we want you to honor God because it is right. Because it honors God, we want you to obey, but also because this is the place of God's protection and blessing for you. God has put you in a family. He's put you under the authority of parents that love you. And he calls you to honor them and to obey them so that it can be a blessing in your life. Now, that's not something we made up. And again, we wanted to point them to this fact as well. This isn't just daddy saying this to you right now. This is God's promise to you. As you honor and obey, it will go well with you and you will live long in the land. We also tried to make very clear the opposite reality. When you disobey, you're removing yourself from the place of correction and blessing that God has provided for you. Again, that, that's not because it's our rule. This is the way that God has established the universe. He has made you to live under authority. First and foremost, our authority so that you can understand how you relate to God's authority. But the way that he has made this world is that when you fight against him, by fighting against your parents and their authority in your lives. You're removing yourself from that place where he has promised to bring blessing and safety for you. And so we tried to help them to see that there is danger in disobedience. Whether that's from the natural, whether that's from the correction that we bring, hey, that's not pleasant. We don't 
like needing to bring this. That, that's part of the it's not going to go well with you aspect. It's often the first part that they see, but we're also aware and trying to impress upon them it's not just us and any correction that we might bring. In our disobedience, there are natural consequences as well, which for them mostly means hot stoves and electrical outlets and cars that can't see them. And that by following us, obeying us, they're in a place of safety that they remove themselves from in their disobedience and rebellion. And ultimately, if they would persist in their sin, that's the most dangerous place you could be. To think that it's just okay to continue. When we sin and rebel and disobey, we're removing ourselves in this place of safety and putting ourselves in harm's way. We wanted them to see that the law was there for their blessing and protection. But you know, the, the nature of sin is such that for each one of us, we want to think that we're the masters of our own fate, captains of our own souls, And, well, we just don't want the rules to apply to us. Yes, I I can choose not to honor God and his authority, but the reality is I still exist in his universe. And so breaking God's law doesn't render it powerless in my life. Just like Eve, we mistakenly think that freedom is found in flaunting the law rather than obeying it. No one is going to tell me what to do. I get to decide the way I go. But we think, ah, it's because we know best. We think that God is a killjoy. We think that rather than the source of life, And freedom, he's trying to withhold something good from us. And so we fight against his law because the liberty that God offers to us is not the freedom we crave. We want not only to choose our actions, whatever they may be, whatever it may please us in the moment, but to have freedom from the consequences of those actions. We turn down the freedom God offers us in an attempt to get freedom from God. Craving not just no rules, but no ruler. And how much does that describe the spirit of our age? No one has any right to make a claim on who I am or what I identify as. How I live my life. There is no authority that has a right. That's oppression. But friends, God made this world and he placed us in it. And he calls us to reflect him in some very particular ways. James is aware that we are blind to our own sin. We deceive ourselves all the time. And so he finds it important to point out that this partiality he's talking about, it's serious. He said, yeah, if if you're doing this, if you're really doing this, I mean, even listen to that phrasing. If if you're really doing this, like almost... I, I kind of believe you. Great, good. If you're really doing this, great job. That is to be commended. But if we are indeed being partial with one another, if we are treating one another not based on love, 
upon our judgments and preferences of one another, well then, he wants us to be very clear, that's not okay. That's violating the command of God. He says, verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. And again, I think he knows what our hearts are like. Those questions that arise within us, how big of a deal could it actually be? I mean, I'm not, it's not like I'm breaking one of the big 10. Okay, those I know, they're off limits. I'm gonna do my best to stay away from those. But come on, I'm just, I'm preferring it. Have a favorite here. That's what's determining how I'm relating to those around me. Is it really that bad? So James seeks to have the law do its work by using love your neighbor in two ways as he begins. He first of all highlights how we are breaking the law. He he wants us to be specific. He wants it to be the law itself. That convicts us. So the question of where does it say thou shalt not be partial, preferential, in case folks are looking for that, he wants to bring it nice and clear. And so he says, hey, you're called to love your neighbor as yourself. When you're partial to different individuals, you're not doing that. And he also does it to identify which law we are bringing as he identifies this law as the royal law. It's the one that Jesus himself brought and made clear as the summary of the entire law. This isn't just some side obscure idea that James is trying to bring conviction on. This is central to the whole thing. This is a violation of the one thing that God in the form of flesh said is essential for us. Now, as we look at at this law that's being cited here, love your neighbor as you love yourself, I, I do think it's important just to be clear Because today I think there can be some confusion about this. That as he says this, Jesus never said you have to learn to love yourself before you can really love others. That wasn't what he was saying. He said you really do love yourself. You do that naturally. You do that all the time. You're very good at this. Your love for others is to seek to attain to be to that level in serving them as you are in serving yourself. The same way that you look out for your own needs and concerns and wants, same attention to detail you give your desires, that's the level in which he's calling us to be looking out for the needs of others, the interests of others, to be caring for them. I mean, when our wants aren't met, we get upset at those we think are standing in the way of our desires. And Jesus is saying, what's your concern for those around you? How is love expressed to them? You're good at the affection you have for yourself. So let's raise the bar a little bit to that level as you relate with those around you. Love is acting in the best interest of someone else in the same manner that I do for myself. And through this we see that the sin of partiality and favoritism is that my care for another, well, I... I'm depending not on their need as the basis, 
but whether they meet whatever criteria I have erected as someone worthy of my time, of my love, of my efforts. I've put a barrier between them and the love that God calls me to give to them because of something other than they're my neighbor. See, that's the criteria that Jesus said, those who are worthy of our love. It's our neighbors. Love your neighbor. There was nothing else after that. Love your neighbor who... Nope, that was it. And in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he highlighted our neighbors aren't just people that are like us, not just those that we like, not just those that are nice to you, but even those you are tempted to despise, those who are very different than you, those who have different convictions than you, those who are from different places than you. All these people that you can think of reasons why they should not be recipients of the same love that I give to myself. He's saying, nope, they're all candidates. Because they're all your neighbor. The command to love my neighbor doesn't stop at my family or care group, my tribe or my nation. I'm to treat the needs of others with the same care and attention I constantly devote to my own but instead of heeding Christ's command to love them because they are my neighbor a fellow image bearer of God himself partiality insists and it inserts my own law of who someone must be or what they must do before I am willing to love them and so James is trying to make very clear for us this this violates the royal law. This law that Jesus said, this is to be our guide, this is to help us see clearly what all the law and the prophets were about. It's lived out in this. Love your neighbor. So being partial is a clear violation of this. And just in case our inner lawyer still searching for an out, a way to minimize, minimize the damage, a way to excuse ourselves. Hey, hey, come on. James, haven't robbed a bank, haven't killed anybody, not Hitler, now that, now that was real discrimination. Okay, let's lay off a little. James continues. So again, he wants the law to do its work. James knows that many of his primarily Jewish readers, how do I put this? Well, they'd be tempted with the same self-righteousness. Many of us, I think of myself particularly as someone growing up in the church, same self-righteousness we can be tempted with. Seeking to use the law to justify ourselves because we haven't broken the really bad ones, the really big parts. And so for anyone that might be mildly disappointed that we never missed out on the really good testimonies because we didn't run away from home or, or do drugs or, or live the life of a prodigal, James brings out this two by four of truth and he starts swinging. He says, you, you who are comfortable, who think everything is okay, that you've never violated any major part of God's law, you are guilty of violating the whole thing. There is no room for self-righteousness. Because if you, if you think the law 
shows how good you are, you've missed the work entirely that it is seeking to do in your life. Verse 10, he says, For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder, if you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Friends, if, if our greatest sin is not showing the same compassion to someone in need that you use to care for your own needs, if that's the extent of your sin, James is saying, you have transgressed the same law as the murderer or rapist. He says his royal law isn't broken into sections that are acceptable and understandable to ignore and then others that are real disobedience. Somewhere we we got this perception that we can break part of the law as long as we don't violate the really bad stuff. Which James is saying, that's kind of like saying, well, I just took this rock and I threw it at the corner of the window. I didn't throw it at the middle of the window. That would be really bad. Even though either one has the result of all the glass being broken. Doesn't matter where we hit the window. The result of his law being broken, violated, has been accomplished. James points out that the law is an indivisible unity. It's a whole. All of it, the reason it is a whole is because all of it is in response to some aspect of God's nature. He calls those created in his image and redeemed by him to reflect him as he is. So bearing false witness isn't just telling a false set of facts. It's telling a lie about who God is because we represent him and he is trustworthy and true and does not lie. Adultery is a big deal, including Christ's expansion of it, even to looking lustfully at someone, because we are called to reflect Christ's faithfulness to his bride. Which means it's not just an innocent look, but a lie about his purity and faithfulness. Partiality is sinful because God is loving And he calls us to reflect his contra-conditional love to all those around us. Love that he displayed by laying down his own life for us. So when he calls us to reflect these things and we fail to do them, it's a big deal. These aren't non-issues, things just to be swept under the rug. Each command has its basis in God's character. To say that any command does not apply to me is to say that some aspect of who God is does not matter in relation to me. We can't violate part of the law without bringing offense against all of God because God isn't divided. He isn't broken into separate pieces. He's one God. And any offense against him is an offense against all of him. Failure at one point makes us guilty of all of it. Because the same God that said, don't murder, also said don't commit adultery. 
and summed up both with love your neighbor. Now, yes, every sin may have different consequences, different collateral damage in the horizontal plane. It's not to say all sin, as we relate with one another, is exactly the same. But each sin's primary offense is against God. It's vertical. The God who calls us to reflect and represent him. And James wants us to be very aware. The law makes claim on us. It doesn't let us off the hook easily. We don't get to choose which parts are okay to simply ignore and others that we seek to avoid. And James continues. He continues to bring the charges of the law against us so that it might do its full work. And in verse 13, he shows us the ultimate fruit of not heeding the royal law. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Well, he's already revealed that our being partial to someone is putting a law up in front of them. It is treating them according in some way to what we think they deserve or don't deserve instead of loving them according to what they need. So his idea, he's revealing here that, that favoritism and partiality are at heart. Well, they're, they're not giving mercy to someone else. It's placing rules or requirements that keep them from benefiting from your love. And he says, that's not kind. That's not merciful. Whether your reason is the other person's occupation or race or nationality, whether it's their stance on immigration or guns, whether it's real sins and offenses against you or just something you don't like, something that annoys you and rubs you the wrong way. This is love isn't about what someone else deserves. It's serving their best interests, even when it costs us something. Even when it makes you put aside something, to have mercy on them, to give them the love that they need, instead of what you think they deserve in that moment. When James states judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy, it's meant to sound very reminiscent of Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant. The one who faced judgment for not forgiving the smaller debts of others after he himself was forgiven a much larger debt. Relationship through Christ is meant to transform us. The old way of operating, an eye for an eye, according to what that person has done to me, that's not the way we as believers are to have as our first mode of relating. He calls us to a higher standard. Now, what James is saying here, just like what James was saying, or Jesus was saying in that parable, is not that we can merit mercy by showing mercy. That's not what's being said. Because, well, frankly, if we could merit our mercy, 
there wouldn't be any need for mercy. Justice, by definition, is, is receiving what we deserve. And just as a heads up, when it comes to the law, we do not want what we deserve. Because what we deserve is the wrath of God against our sin that is revealed through his law. So that's not the time to cry for justice. We want to be recipients of mercy. Mercy is not receiving that penalty, that punishment that we do deserve. We have earned the punishment, the wrath of God. It's what is owed to us. We deserve it. And God would be entirely within his rights. Indeed, he would be just to give it to us. Apart from Christ, that is our reality. We stand with no defense, for we have violated his law, and as just been made clear, we have violated all of it. It is a direct attack against the character and nature of God himself, an offense that he does not take lightly. By definition, mercy cannot be deserved. It cannot be earned. It's not receiving what we do deserve. Mercy must be freely given to us. And when we see that, when we realize that's the way he relates to us, it's not because of how good I am, what I've done for him. It's because he has chosen to show me his kindness and mercy, not because of any claim I can make to it, quite the opposite. I have deserved His wrath. But instead, in his amazing kindness, he has been merciful to me, not because he doesn't care about my sin and my offense, but because he himself bore the penalty for me. Who of us could be so bold as to ask God to do that for us? I have violated your law. Become your enemy. Do something to fix this, God. I mean, that's one of those by, we have no right, we have no claim to even request that God would do something like that, let alone demand it. And yet, and yet in his freedom, he did not do what was earned by us, but instead took that and poured it out upon his son, his only son, who willingly went and took our place. That should amaze us. The reason the unmerciful don't receive mercy isn't because they haven't earned it, it's because they aren't truly new creations born again by God's spirit. Because that's the only way we can relate to those around us in such a way. It's not natural. It's not natural to choose not to pay back what someone 
has done to hurt us, not to hold that grudge, not to be bitter. That's very understandable. That's very human. We can all relate to that. It's just that God calls us not to live in the way that's natural to us, but the way that reflects him. And the only way we can do that is if we have been transformed by what he has done for us. There's not enough willpower to make us want to do that and really love those around us, those who don't deserve it, those who we despise in different ways. But as he transforms, he really transforms. And he gives us his spirit so that we can live out the things that he's calling us to do. He empowers us to reflect that amazing love that he has given to us. The purpose of the law isn't to justify us. It's to break us of our self-sufficiency, our self-righteousness, so that we see our need for his mercy, the mercy of the Savior. We must be broken by the law so we can be freed to really fulfill the law. Because only when we realize the law's condemnation is not the last word will we stop treating others according to the laws of our own making, seeking to fashion my neighbor in my own image before I love them. Now I can be free to love them because I have been so loved. I can be free to love them not according to who they are and what they do, but because they are like me, an image bearer. And I want them to see the same love that God has given to me. And so James says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now friends, this is just something that apart from the relationship with the merciful Savior, it doesn't make any sense. James' designation of the law of liberty apart from relationship with him, is a nonsensical oxymoron. Because if we aren't viewing the law through the lens of knowing him and his great love for us, the love that he has already given, not according to what we do, but who he is and what he has done for us, if we don't see the law through that lens, then we'll always believe, we'll be tempted at least, to believe the same lie that Satan has been peddling ever since the garden. That God's law is trying to keep us from the best stuff rather than point us to the best stuff. Let me see if a picture will help. Can you see that? Oh, I wished it would have been bigger. All right, this is the Jungus Road. Can you see it at all? Okay, those are, uh, yeah. Um, this is the Jungus Road in Bolivia. It's one of the few passages between the capital of La Paz and the northern Jungus region, which a few years ago happened to be the location of the orphanage we were going to serve. The road starts in the high plains at an elevation over 15,000 feet, which just for reference is about 1,000 feet higher than the peaks of Colorado, and ends in mountainous rainforest at an elevation just under 4,000 feet. Listen to this description of the road. The largely single-lane road has few guardrails and cliffs of up to 2,000 feet. During the rainy season, rain and fog can severely hamper visibility and water runoff can turn the road into a muddy track. I can attest to that because we had to get out the last mile and walk. Affecting traction. In the summer, rock falls are common. We saw these on the road. And vehicle dust limits visibility as well. 
One of the local rules, road rules, specifies that the downhill driver never has the right of way and must move to the outer edge of the road. This forces the faster downhill vehicle to stop so that passing can be negotiated safely. Unlike the rest of Bolivia, vehicles on this stretch are required to drive on the left side of the road to give the driver a better view of the vehicle's outside wheel to make passing safer. This was a fun trip. Mileage that uh, you would think, boy, on any modern road would, would take an hour, 90 minutes, took us six or seven. It's nicknamed the Death Road because of the approximate 200 annual fatalities. Two-way traffic, single lane width, cliffs most of the way. Few guardrails. Our trip in a bus, no less, where when passing you can stick your head out the window and not see any road at different times below you, it gives one a new appreciation for guardrails. Traveling like this helps you see that that no guardrails does not equal complete freedom. You wish for guardrails to provide clear boundaries, to provide safety for you. Guardrails aren't there to restrict you from going where some mean bureaucrat doesn't want you to go, but to provide freedom from the constant fear of going over the edge. Guardrails are caring They point us to what is best. This is the path that you were meant to go. This is the path of safety and blessing. Leave it at your own peril. They're meant to point us to what's best for us, what's best for those around us. In the context of loving relationship with God, The heart behind the law is life and freedom, not restriction. Freedom to know him and how to love him, how to relate to him, how to reflect him, how to love and bless those around us. He hasn't made us guess at what he's like. He hasn't made us guess at what pleases him, about how we can reflect him and show him to those around us, how we can enjoy relationship with him. Put in the context of the garden for a moment. God made this beautiful place. And he brings the man and he says, I made you to live here, to enjoy this, to serve as my representative. It has everything you need. There's nothing you lack for. This is a place of blessing for you, care for you. Every tree here is provided for your enjoyment, for your blessing, for your sustenance. Only one is harmful, but it will result in your death. For him to say, don't eat from that tree, is not cruel, it's not unkind, it's the most loving thing that he could do. Saying, or not even mentioning the tree was there, that might be unkind. Or saying that somewhere in here there's a tree, it's bad for you. You eat it, you're going to die. Good luck. That, that's not kind of God just to have 
no boundaries, no direction. That doesn't show his love and care for us. I don't want to tell you what to do. No, he wants to tell us what to do because he wants to show us what's best. How this works. Where we can thrive and live and enjoy and be blessed and cared for. The place that he has provided for us. No boundaries or guardrails is not helpful or liberating. I mean, if he doesn't tell you which tree it is, just that there's a tree, how hungry do you go before you're willing to risk that this first bite could be my last? He's more loving than that. He's more generous than that. He's given us Ways that we can reflect him, ways that please him, ways that show him. Because he really does care about our welfare. We need to understand who he is, how he relates with us, the love that he has for us. Because that alone will transform our understanding of the law. Understand ultimately that we aren't measured by our performance here. We're measured by his performance. That's where the law truly becomes liberty. Yes, it's, it's good things, but ultimately it's, he's liberated us. He's freed us. Now we can obey, but we do so without the constant fear that I'm gonna fall off the edge. He's taken care of it for us. He's made us safe so now we can enjoy relating with him, relating with others, seeking to honor and to please. He loves through his law. First to show us our failure and our need for his saving mercy so that, secure in his love, we can be freed to really fulfill his, loyal, his royal law. Freed from fear. To constantly be looking over our shoulder. But instead, to love him. Because of his great love for us. And further, he empowers us by his spirit to reflect that amazing love to those around us, to live in a new way. The gracious, compassionate, merciful God sent his only son to reveal his contra-conditional love by laying down his love, his life for us, for rebels, lawbreakers, haters, and enemies of God. Us. That should amaze us. That should transform us. Because mercy triumphs over judgment. Hallelujah. Paul writes a very complimentary couple verses in Galatians 5, verses 13 and 14, where he says, For you were called to freedom. Brothers, you were called to freedom. He has set us free. No longer in bondage to the demands that the law brings, but by fulfilling it himself, he has freed us from the claim of penalty upon us. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Friends, let's not use our freedom 
as an opportunity of the flesh. Let's not use it for the old way of thinking, the old way of relating. Let's see what he has done for us. Let's be transformed by what he has done for us so that we can speak and act as those living under the law of liberty by loving our neighbor as ourself. Let's pray together.